Thank you very much for joining me, Liz. Much My appreciate pleasure. It. How are you? Thank you, David. And I feel um, great privilege because you could not do these interviews up until like, you know, six, seven months ago, right? You were That's always correct. attached to to larger uh, financial organization with a lot of red tape. So uh, again, this is a fantastic phenomenal that we managed to finally, you know, unveil the curtain and allow for, for you to have uh, a free conversation. So thank you very yes, much I'm for that. Free. I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get started, you have unbelievable clout in the industry, uh, especially around authentication and digital transformation and so on. How did you get started? Maybe walk me through some, some of your career path. Oh, my goodness. Well, the beginning is very different than the end. So I started out, um, I was bound for Broadway. I was going to be a, a Broadway star, of course. Um, I went to the University of Michigan School of Music and uh, was going to, I majored in musical theater, and that was my path. I had never, ever in a million years pictured I would end up with a lifetime career in banking um, and specifically authentication. So um, several things combined to change my course. Um, one, mostly the, my throat didn't want to cooperate with my plans. So I ended up um, having to choose a different vocation because I couldn't sing anymore. Um, so I decided to switch schools. I went to a small liberal arts school where I could try out different majors and figure out what I wanted to do. I majored in music, but it wasn't performance. And then um, when I graduated, I thought I would maybe try teaching. I had a teaching degree, et cetera. That didn't work out. I ended up temping and doing a lot of different stuff until my my best friend, who also had been a music major, had worked at a bank in all of her summers, and they had offered her um, an opportunity to be in a management training class at a at a big bank. And she started having this great career, and I looked over and I said, well, I can do that. <laughs> so I applied to a different bank. I got in. I became part of um, the predecessor to Bank of America, Sovereign Bank. And I started learning everything there was to know about banking. I worked in the banking centers and the branches. I worked in commercial real estate. I worked in personnel. And then I realized that too many people were focused on my musical background and didn't give me a lot of credit. So I went back to school while I was working and got my MBA, which incidentally is also where I met my husband. And I got my MBA in organizational behavior and started working in personnel and doing uh, coaching and uh, teamwork building and those sorts of things. And then um, moved into um, uh, Six Sigma and, um, you know, uh, quality, the whole quality movement. And then from there, I kind of was working in sort of an operational quality role at the bank when somebody said, we've got this little problem over here in our call centers, and you seem to be pretty good at problem solving. In your spare time, could you maybe solve this problem we have that's due to um, us not following our authentication procedures 
as well as we should. And I started being thrown into to the wolves of authentication. This was uh, 20 years ago, I think. And um, I learned a tremendous amount about the challenges in the call center to start with. And then I ended up taking on the role of I fixed the problem. And then I took on the role of leading all of the authentication procedures and policies and technologies for the contact centers nationwide, which then led me into an innovation role um, because I got involved in a lot of innovation in that space. So I started, I was one of the early um, people who was looking at voice biometrics back in 2000, 2004, um, did a pilot around that um, and then started to get into a lot more innovation because in order to solve for this very thorny thing, this this mixture between technology and human behavior and security that is authentication, you have to be very innovative. And so I started coming up with some pretty innovative ideas, which then took me into our innovation team at the bank. And um, for seven or eight years, I was an innovation developer and concept developer. And then from there, I moved officially into the sort of digital space um, at that time. Um, the mobile and online space was starting to become much more um, popular in the bank. And I moved into that space and was responsible for the strategy for authentication. Um, and that's where I've been. I did uh, strategy for authentication. I did technology for authentication um, and identity. I did uh, uh, information security policies for all of that. And so I've been involved in just about every aspect of how to approach authentication um, and uh, did that for Bank of America and Wells Fargo. So it's very, very bizarre path to get where I am from being a, you know, aspiring Broadway star. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, unbelievable journey. And I have so many questions I'm trying to keep them in order. Sure. Um, and we'll dive into the authentication pieces as well, for sure, because I'd like to unravel some, some of that yeah. and tap into your, into your knowledge. Uh, but before we get into that, you know, this is not the first time that I've, that I've uh, interviewed folks that have, uh, you know, musical background mm. and not the first time that I interviewed somebody musical background where, their friend was also a musician who happened to be doing something else for a living oh, really? and say, Hey, why don't you join? Yes. So that, that is, and we'll, we'll invite your, your dog in a yeah, second as well to, to join us. Um, Musical too. <laughs> <laughs> and do you find, um, so I have a couple, couple questions in regards to the kind of the background is one, do you find that your, your uh, kind of the musical training, you know, despite the fact that you mentioned that at a time uh, you were not being considered, uh, you know, seriously because of that background, do you find that they, despite that, and again, I've interviewed very, some very successful cybersecurity professionals and practitioners that have a musical background. Do you find that there's, there's some aspect of music that can potentially allow for people to become great, you know, cybersecurity practitioners? Um, I don't know. That feels like something I haven't really thought about. Um the connection between music and cybersecurity, but certainly the connection between being a performer and being a corporate citizen, basically, you know, being a, a manager or an individual contributor where you have to spend a lot of time giving presentations and leading groups of people. It, it certainly helped me there. I never had any fear 
of of talking to people, of being up in front of, you know, I did a lot of, I've done conferences, I've done, you know, uh, public speaking a lot in my, my career. And it's never bothered me because to me, my, my ideal thing would be that with that microphone in my hand that I could just break out into song. Second best is that I get to talk about, you know, something I'm passionate about, but, um, I see that as more of the connection than I would, um, the cybersecurity aspect of it. Um, frankly, you know, the whole authentication world and cybersecurity is a lot more, um, it, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's a, a never ending battle that we're waging. Um, whereas music for me has always been sort of an outlet from the intensity of other things in my life. So I like the fact that I still have both that I can uh, relax with music and I can get really fired up and, um, you know, intense with yeah, authentication. Absolutely. And, and then on top of that, you, uh, I, I heard you saying I had to learn, I had to learn, I had, you had to reinvent yourself quite yep. a few times yes. and you've done it so successfully. What attributes do you have specifically? And, and I love to, to um, expose your story because a lot of people are potentially doing some other things that mm -hmm. are unrelated to IT or cybersecurity yeah. for that matter. And, but they do want to get into the field, but they always say, Oh, but I don't have the background, but look at you, you've, you know, you, you knew that, that was not the path you taken, and then you decided to jump in and start learning, and very quickly found your niche. Um, you know, you know, you um, you were there to take on the opportunity. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I think the turning point for you was specifically, if I hear about the story, is that the fact that you were you were positioned to be called in to solve a major problem around authentication for call centers at a large bank. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of you know, in order to problem solve, you have to learn. Right. The very first step, I'm Six Sigma trained. So, you know, forgive me, but before you can try to solve a problem, you have to understand that problem. You have to be able to define it and understand it. And that process, you have to learn a whole lot about the problem. And so when I was brought in to solve the, the authentication problem in the contact center, the very first thing I did, because I had very little exposure to contact centers, was I sat in and on calls just over and over and over and over again. Um, listening to the authentication pieces and understanding firsthand what customers were going through um, and what the, the call agent was going through and, and sitting there looking at their screens while they were on the phone with customers. It just, that learning has to happen in order to, to solve a problem. So for me, my whole career, anytime I've been faced with a problem, I always go to the the practical, tangible side of that problem. So before I can try to put, I, I don't want to put like an academic solution together. I need a solution that's going to actually work with the people who who do it. Um, I, I took a, a course as part of my um, uh, many different jobs at, at the bank. I can't even remember which one. It's probably innovation in ethnography. And in ethnography, you basically go and sit with cu customers in their homes and watch them interact with your product um, and learn everything there is to know about how they react and how they um, how they interact in in every situation. And so you can't possibly 
work in authentication without actually experiencing authentication yourself and then trying to solve for it, which as you and I both know, trying to get into this into this uh, discussion today and, and get recorded, I got all turned around trying to authenticate into uh, an application that I didn't use on a regular basis, couldn't remember the password, tried to get in through, you know, let me sign in with Google. Oh, but what's my password for that? And let me sign in with Apple. Well, what's my password? <laughs> so it was um, very ironic that you know, my, my obstacle trying to learn and grow was the very thing that I do, which is authentication. Yeah, absolutely. And Liz, what's interesting about this is that that project for the contact center was back in, you know, t around 2004, which was, you know, quite a few uh, years ago. Yes. Um, but we are, as you experience today, we still have major issues with authentication. It seems like yeah. they, it's one of the, the most cardinal problems and issues with you know, cybersecurity and risk uh, associated with like large organization, actually all size organizations. And we encounter it uh, firsthand on a day-to-day -day basis. Why is that? And it's, I know it's an open-ended question. Why is authentication and identity such a big problem? Uh, so the answer is not, it's not a good, it's not a pretty answer because it all has to do with the, um, the relationship that we have as human beings between what we know we should do and what we want to do <laughs> and, and us in the authentication world, trying to run this very narrow path between those two realities. So I, as a, as a human being, not as an authentication expert, I wanted to get in to this application as quickly as I could because you were waiting for me. So my behavior is get me in, get me in, get me in. But what I know in my mind intellectually is, well, don't do it in an unsafe way. Like I don't want to sign into this thing and have some hacker come behind me and, and, you know, get into my stuff. But that's for you people to figure out, not for me as the consumer. So the reason why it continues to be a difficult situation is because the masses of people that try to authenticate have convenience on their brain. And the people who are designing and trying to implement authentication structures and put them out in front of people know that they have convenience on the brain and that security is always at the heart of what everyone wants, but they just assume it's happening behind the scenes and I can still be as convenient as I want to be without you interrupting me. So if you go back to the contact center experience in particular, the mindset of a person calling into a contact center is I've got a problem I need solved. Don't bother me, just fix it. So the, all the all the authentication is, is just an obstacle, instant obstacle to everything you're doing. And so the people who are trying to solve for that know that customers just want to get in. They want to solve their problem. If you're at least on your mobile phone and you are interacting with something fun or interesting or something that you are more motivated to spend a little bit more time on, you might be willing to try on like, well, let me, let me set up my fingerprint or let me do something that might make my life a little easier, might take me a minute, 
but I got it, but it will have a payoff. But the contact center, I don't want to mess with any of that stuff. I just want to get in and talk to somebody. So that, that tug of war between what customers really want to do and what technology needs them to do to stay safe, that's still going on. And that's why we're still struggling with it. It's just human behavior. Yeah, and it's the old uh, issue between um, usability and security, right? Um, And privacy. And privacy. privacy. So, like, for instance, in the contact center, easy fix. Why don't I just, uh, you know, why don't I just make a voice print out of everything you're saying, and then the next time you call in, I'll know it's you. Perfect. I don't bother anybody. Um, I don't have to enroll you in it. I don't have to raise all kinds of obstacles, except there's all kinds of privacy violations around recording somebody's voice without their consent. Once you stop to get consent, you're now in the convenience, you know, issue mode. So there are, you know, the technology to do authentication is pretty advanced. There's lots of technology out there. It's the marriage between privacy customer usability and that technology that is so challenging. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about the, you know, fairly high risk, right? If yes. somebody um, authenticates your bank account, uh, you know, there's a uh, potential for, you know, quite, uh, quite large losses. Yeah. And then in terms of the technology, there's always, again, the, you know, so you mentioned voice print, which is great, but then there are, you know, there's the ability to fake that, right? Is uh, maybe not in 2004, but, you know, fast forward to today there. I mean, I know that there are biometric solutions out there that are trying to circumvent that. And, yeah. and it's almost like a cat and mouse game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at deep fake, you can almost, uh, you know, create. So there's like oh, now liveness detection and all kinds of different yes. mechanisms. We'll jump into that. Yeah. Um, but what are so maybe like let's talk a bit about that, you know, so. In the journey for making things more usable and more secure at the same time, which mm-hmm. almost sounds like an oxymoron, yeah. there's a lot of um, lot of technologies, a lot of frameworks. So let's let's talk about one that you're very familiar with, the FIDO, uh, sure. the, kind of the framework. Um, and you were, you know, instrumental to to getting that uh, into the banks and so on. So you're like a, you know, de facto expert in this space. So maybe if you don't mind just describing that in kind of a very, uh, you know, quick uh, overview of so somebody who's not familiar with the FIDO authentication um, yeah, sure. uh, framework. Um, so we'll FIDO, which stands for Fast ID Online, is a, it's a standard that was developed um, by a group of companies, which is very similar to USB or Bluetooth in the sense that it was designed to solve a technological problem. And then in addition with FIDO, it's designed to solve a security problem. So if you think about um, the days when we used, if you can remember back to when we didn't have Bluetooth, let's say, um, and you had a set of headphones that went with a very specific device. So like think about your minivans came with their own headphones, right? And I could only use those really cool headphones that were wireless and really awesome in my van. Wouldn't it yeah, be it nice if I could take those into my house and use them with my stereo? But no, couldn't do it until Bluetooth I- came along. Yeah, I think so, the first one were running on 900, 900 megahertz or something like that, and then 2.4 gigahertz, and they had to have right. the the receiver 
uh, in, you know, planted into the other end of the device. Right. So you, you get into all of the sort of technical standards to make different devices all work together the same way. USB, the same thing. If I, if everything plugs into a laptop the same way, then I don't have to have multiple ports that do different things. I have one USB port or two USB ports. I don't have to have different ports for different things. So now all my peripherals all can just be USB. Now, of course, we have USB-C, so now you have to upgrade that. Fido's the same way, but it speaks to um, how you use authentication between devices. So companies like Google, Microsoft, Apple, um, Intel, Samsung, there's a whole long list of large manufacturers, Microsoft, did I say that, um, that have adopted FIDO as the solution for how to make the authentication experience for consumers and employees um, more uniform than it, than it is currently where you might have one device that does it one way, another device does it another way. You interact with different applications on your on your browser stuff, and you do things differently than you do on your phone, and you use tokens, and you use all these different things. What FIDO does is it, it, it makes it all uniform and all equally secure and provides like a security um, certification process so that, you know, sort of think about like the, the light bulbs that have the stamp on them that say UL, whatever. You don't have to necessarily know what Underwriters Lab is, and you don't go around talking about UL, but you know it's there. That's what FIDO is. It's behind the scenes. It's built into all of the, a lot of the devices that everyone uses every day, but you just don't know it. It's just there, ready to make like a, a security handshake with an application either in your phone or on your laptop that is trying to authenticate you. Does that make and, sense? And so yeah, it does. And I, no, no, it does. Absolutely. And, you know, standards are great. You know, if you think about, you mentioned uh, light bulb. So you mentioned the fact that the only reason why we advance so much in terms of the electronics we have is that finally the, you know, everyone has the same socket in their home. So mm -hmm. you buy off the shelf, uh, you know, electrical device, you plug it in, it just works because right. the manufacturers have to adhere to a certain standard. And the same goes for authentication. Yeah. So, but what is the secret sauce around FIDO that we did not have, you know, prior to that. So if sure. before, you know, everything was wild, wild west in terms yeah. of authentication. Yeah. Well, there's sort of two elements that make it the secret sauce. One is there's a, without getting into all the technological stuff, there's a public private key pair. So you have a, a, a blob of data that um, can be exposed in the public and not be worth anything because it only means something if it's paired uniquely with a, a different blob of data that's kept private. So you have this public-private key pairing um, that creates a tokenized environment that you can rely on for from a strength perspective. But the nice thing about it is it's it's asymmetrical. So you don't have to do it like you do with like a security card where you have to issue those credentials in a very rigid way and, and, and you know, seed all of that stuff. This is all done through the, the communication protocols that have been designed through the FIDO standard. Your one public key device is talking to your private key 
servers. So everything speaks to each other. It's kind of confusing that way. But the public-private key pair is the strength of the security. And then the other piece that makes it secret sauce is that it's built in. So you don't have to, as an organization, if you have an application or a, you know, a, a web app or something that you want someone to authenticate into, you don't have to build something special to make it secure. If your customer is using their fingerprint on their mobile device and everything is through the FIDO protocols, then everything just speaks to everything. You don't have to build it yourself. You just have to have a FIDO server that talks to the FIDO device. So I don't have my, yeah. So my phone can act as an authenticator if it's got the FIDO key inside of it. So think of, you know, anything physical that you would normally associate with security, a card or a token or something like that, is now that the strength of that security is now living in our laptops and in our phones and in our tablets. And so that's the difference is that we have the, the participation of these very large manufacturers, Microsoft, Google, uh, Samsung, Apple, et cetera, that are shipping their products with this already built in capability. So that makes it so different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a great uh, explanation of how that works. And, and what's amazing about this in particular is that um, we use a device which we already have and we carry and we, yep. we don't ever, you know, we, we leave the house without our keys. Uh, often, more often than not, but we don't leave it without our, you know, without our smartphone. Yeah. So the ability to have that. Uh, and then also, as you mentioned, it's universal, so you don't have to do anything special. So kind of FIDO is, is uh, you have the ability to use FIDO behind the scene mm -hmm. um, on various type of application, whether it's cloud, whether it's uh, browser-based yep. and so on. Is that, is that a correct That statement? is correct, yeah. Yeah. And there's... And so how does if... Mm, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say there's um, there's different experiences that you can create that are all built on the FIDO protocols, but they're different if you're using a, a browser. So like the other thing with, um, with FIDO that makes it kind of special and I find pretty exciting is that people are very accustomed to now with the introduction of fingerprint by Apple into their phones, they're very accustomed to interacting with their Apple operating system within their applications. So when you're in any application on your phone and it prompts you for your fingerprint, 99% of the time, that's the Apple operating system. Most people anymore are not going out and creating their own Apple fingerprint. You know, it's not like a separate fingerprint. It's all built into the phone or face ID. Um, so people are very accustomed to that. But what FIDO has brought to the table is the ability to have that same experience in your laptop on a browser device or in your phone on the browser, because the, the web browsers have also built to the FIDO protocol using something called WebAuthn, which is a browser protocol that was built on the FIDO protocol. And so now I can take advantage of all of the things that are built into my laptop, not just the things that are built into my phone. So my phone has a fingerprint scanner on it. I get to use that in my applications. My laptop has a fingerprint scanner on it. I don't get to use that with anything unless somebody is FIDO certified, like unless somebody offers 
and provides a FIDO application. So if I, as a consumer, want to use that fingerprint, I need to go tell my websites, hey, get with the program, give me the opportunity to use my fingerprint to sign into your application, just like you let me use the fingerprint on my phone. Why can't I use the fingerprint on my laptop? That's what FIDO enables because the laptop, the browser, and the originating application all speak the same FIDO language and it can communicate. So that's what's pretty cool. And, and uh, the experience is amazing, right? If compare that to a shared secret environment where you oh, have yeah. to or two-factor authentication or multi-factor where you have to, as you mentioned, enter a password, hoping that you don't have to do a password reset, right. get, you know, get your, you know, get your token and whatever is for text or a multi-factor. It's yes. always like, it's always a, you know, honestly, it's a real hassle, right? Hassle. You, you get, yep. the, you get the token, you got to remember the six digits or you got to enter those in. And how many times have you entered those in incorrectly? Yeah. Because it, because it's six or seven digits. And unfortunately and, right now, it's not even just the convenience of it from a security perspective. There's just tons of phishing going on. So people are, are, are asking for that code from you you don't know you're giving it, you think you're giving it to the bank or you're giving it to something legitimately, but you're really giving it to a fraudster so they can get into your account, which is bad. <laughs> so even a one-time code is not as secure as what the FIDO security offers with the usability that's frankly far better. Yeah, and we've heard some some stories about SIM swap you know, yeah. getting, uh, you know, getting some, some, some major fishing. Yeah. There's all, of there's all kinds of stuff associated with it. Yep. And again, it's, it's all about the experience. So if, if a, an organization or somebody who owns a, an application wants to join in and say, well, listen, this, you know, what are you saying right now? sounds amazing. Yeah. How do I, how do I start? Where do I start? Like, how do I, do I well, have to download something? Do I have to, I mean, how does that the work? The best place to start is just to go to Fido, um, FidoAlliance.org. And everything you could ever want to know about FIDO, Alliance, about FIDO as a protocol, you can see the actual protocol because it's an open source code. Um, you can read white papers. You can look at videos. I don't, FIDO is a nonprofit alliance. I don't work for them. I don't, like a lot of people think that FIDO is like some company that sits and holds products in, you pay them or something. No, the FIDO alliance is just the, the vehicle by which the protocol was created and now being um, sort of education for anyone who wants to know how to do this. There are FIDO vendors out in the ecosystem that you can buy a FIDO server from, or you can build it yourself based on open source code. So the easiest thing to do, you go to FIDOalliance.org and everything you'd ever want to know about how to implement, reading white papers, looking at case studies, watching videos, seeing all the companies that are using it, it's all there. Yeah, and it's, you mentioned ecosystem. You know, there's a lot of companies that adopted FIDO early, like, for example, uh, Hyper uh, comes to mind. That, Hyper's uh, one of the FIDO vendors, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, they came out and decided that uh, they're going to adopt it before, you know, before FIDO was, you know, just starting to, to come out as a, as a standard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's always the, the case, you know, 
build versus buy. A lot of companies mm-hmm. do not want to maintain because it's not just building it. You have to maintain it and somebody yeah. have to hire somebody to, to run it as well. Yeah. Um, but we're seeing it across the board. Uh, you mentioned that there's, um, there's an ability to authenticate to, uh, to a browser, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to start seeing that yep. more and more to, uh, application that are web, yep. completely web applications. eBay does have, it today. Yep. If you go to yep. eBay, you can use your browser to sign in. But they don't, they don't say, you know, use Fido. They just say, hey, would you moment, use the, you know. No. At the moment, <laughs> the word Fido right now is not really a recognizable brand right. for, to consumers. Um, it could be if anyone puts it on their website or says, you know, sign in with Fido. But um, right now, it's pretty well known in the authentication industry, but not so much with consumers. The same way that, you know, the average consumer can't tell you what USB stands for, but they know, they know to use it. You know, they can't tell you how it works or why they have it, but they know that it makes life easier. That's all, you know, that's all consumers really need to know about FIDO at this stage until it becomes more, uh, you know, widely branded. And, and just to, for those who are listening to this uh, conversation and not familiar with it, all you have to remember that, you know, Fido used to be a very popular uh, pet's name <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there, it is today or not, but I think at some point it was. Um, it was associated with sort of like, uh, you know, the everyday dog, you know, come here, Fido, you know, sick him or something. <laughs> but, um, it stands for Fast ID Online. Um, and, uh, you know, it's become just an accept, you know, a name that a lot of people recognize in that space. And but. it's amazing, Liz, that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, standards that, um, that essentially, uh, take over. So, uh, for example, VHS, uh, and, you know, like the beta max or whatever, they, there's a couple different standards and then one of them emerges as the kind of the de facto, and I, I believe FIDO right now, you know, because of the adoption and in the industry leaders is, is definitely uh, posed to be, uh, to be one, right? Yeah, I mean, if you've got Google and Apple and Microsoft um, shipping it in their machines, it's pretty much the standard, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, there, there really isn't anything else um, that, is it, now, can you solve for authentication without FIDO? Yes. There's nothing that says you have to use FIDO. There's no regulation that says you have to use FIDO. There's nothing like that. But what we are starting to see in the authentication space is that the, um, if your goal as, an, as a company is to implement um, an authentication technology that is uh, – and, you know, has phishing resistance, has, uh, you know, a, a, a scalability, has uh, usability, has all of these features, then you pretty much end up with FIDO. But it's not a question of, you know, does everyone have to use FIDO? No. I mean, there's plenty of authentication going on without FIDO. People are using fingerprints and so forth without FIDO. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's totally unsafe. It just means that if you're trying to accomplish a lot of, you're trying to hit a lot of different uh, top, you know, like top issues in authentication that you're trying to solve for, FIDO has done a lot of that thinking for you and has developed a protocol that solves for a lot of the things 
that most people want to solve for. So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear. No one is, no one has mandated FIDO in any way, shape or form. And, but if the, you know, these large companies are shipping their devices with it built in, there's definitely a, an embrace of what FIDO can do. And I'll just add one last piece. There's a white paper that just came out from FIDO recently that um, talks about the ability to use FIDO with multiple devices at the same time um, is really trying to solve for a convenience issue when you get a new device. And today you have to reset all of your authentication. Apple, you know, already started to solve for that some with their password, um, you know, vault where you can just, uh, the, the cloud will take you from one device to the next and your passwords for all your different applications stays, but your biometrics don't. Un unless those applications are using FIDO, they can now uh, sync across different devices. So there's a great white paper out there that FIDO just launched this week, I think, or last week, that talks about this big breakthrough in being able to have multiple devices and a single FIDO key gets, you know, gets synced across those different devices. So then I, as a consumer, don't have to be um, inconvenienced when I get my new device. Everything will stay the same. I open my app. I can still use my fingerprint. And, and it's all... Uh... You know, just solving for real life issues, right? Real life problems. Yeah. And again, this is what you, the the use case you just described is is very common. People okay. change and lose the devices all the time. They change devices. We upgrade the phones on a year to you know yearly basis almost. Yeah. Um, and then it's you're absolutely correct. Once you get a new one, you have to make sure you transfer all your multi factor exactly. authentication, everything else to yep. you know to your new device. And that process is uh, you know tedious to say the least. Yeah. So that's uh, going to solve for that for any application that makes, you know, is FIDO acceptable or whatever the language is. And, and, you know, you know how it is, like you end up, you know, that one application, you forgot to transfer the, you know, the, yep. the multi-factor over and then you're stuck and then yep. you have to figure out, okay, what do I do next? How do I, you know, get another token? Yeah. Well, uh, and for also that the company that, um, who's, who has that application wants you to use the easiest method that they offer to get in the easiest and most secure method. So if they offer fingerprint, they want you to use that because it makes life easier for them. You don't have to call to reset your password as much. You're not complaining, you're happy and it's more secure. Great. But if you have to reset it each time you get a new, you know, you upgrade your app on a new phone, you're going to find that irritating and you may not do it. And so it's in the best interest of the company that you use those mechanisms that they've provided for you that are safer and, and easier. So it's better if you don't have to do those things for both the consumer and the originating app owner. Yeah, the cost, I saw some numbers, the costs associated with um, password, you know, re it's tremendous. And then the, you know, the loss of potential revenue, for example, where you're not, you know, you don't get into the app because you forgot the password and you don't want to reset it. I mean, that's that's by itself. Who knows it's what the numbers terrible. are? Yeah. Um, and it's and, and you uh, from all people understand that, you know, 
problems uh, when they're like, you know, they're talking about five, 10, 15 individuals get completely amplified. When we're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, oh, yeah. whether it's yeah. uh, employees, millions or, uh, or end user consumers. Yeah. Um, and now there's also movement to, uh, for, as you mentioned, maybe it's not a, it's not a must, but it, you know, there is regu regulatory compliance, uh, requirements for, for example, two factor authentication for yes. a lot of financials yeah. uh, that they have to comply. And then FIDO does, um, you know, does com provide that compliancy, right? Yes. When, when you, when you apply it. Okay. Yes. And, uh, so that leads you to the next question. You, um, you were able to, uh, work with these large organizations and a lot of times you had to communicate, uh, some in intangibles. Uh, like authentication, mm -hmm. like, you know, protocols to mm -hmm. executives. Yeah. Do you find, you know, how did you manage to, uh, you know, what's your advice for people trying to do that today? It's, it's part of the kind of the soft skills associated with, with technology that not a lot of people talk about. No, it's a really good point. Um, it was one of the things that I actually looked forward to a lot <laughs> um, was getting a newbie, you know, somebody who didn't know a lot about the space and being able to help them understand um, at a very real level. So I always like to use analogies and things that people can relate to. So that's why I always talk about, you know, Fido, think of USB, think of Bluetooth, because People under just just innately understand that stuff, even though they don't understand it. You know, they understand how it interacts with them. So I always used um, real life examples, and then also the best way to talk about um, authentication or really any um, corporate issue um, is to bring the customer to the table. In other words, bringing voice of the customer to the discussion changes the whole trajectory of the discussion. So I would always prepare any presentation that I would bring to senior executives um, uh, would always include some quote or a series of quotes from actual customers about authentication so that you could see the, the real life impact that this has on, uh, you know, a customer's relationship with the bank or a company for that matter um, can be damaged very quickly if their authentication experience is poor. And likewise, if they're a victim of fraud. Um, so either one of those can really change the whole discussion as opposed to talking. I mean, I'll get to the eventual you know, the costs and the technology design and all that good stuff. But you have to appeal to people's hearts and minds before you can talk to their pocketbooks. And it's amazing that you you managed to bring in a, a technical issue um, concept to the human level and bring oh, yeah. it down to something that people can relate, which I think is super important. Yeah. And what's also interesting is you talked about experiences you know, really, is there anything else aside from digital experience today? I mean, the, the times of you walking into a branch, it's almost becoming, uh, you know, like you know, the extincts, like the dinosaurs, the dodo bird, right? It I is. Mean, I don't remember like last time. So the only know. experience you have with your, your financial institution or a lot of the other institutions uh, for that matter is all through digital, right? So, and then the first experience is really authentication. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if that is done, you know, you get in a bad mood right away. If you if you can't authenticate, even mm-hmm. if eventually you can or reset the password. Yep. You're already starting on the left foot, right? You're not. Absolutely. Like, you're not getting, you know. Absolutely. But it's interesting how they're so interdependent, um, even if you have way fewer people going into branches, banking centers, whatever, uh, you know, brick and mortar stores than you used to. Obviously, 20, 30 years ago, everyone was walking into branches, not uh, dealing with, you know, laptops and and phones to do their banking. Um, But even though we have so much fewer of that, there's still so much more uh, pressure now because of that on the digital experience. In other words, every digital experience always runs into some kind of a brick wall where we can only go so far without you coming in person. And that puts tremendous pressure, especially during the pandemic, it puts so much pressure on the digital experience that it had to meet every security situation that you would think of so that we weren't saying, I'm sorry, we can't help you. You're going to have to go into a banking center. Because think about a scenario where I've tried to authenticate you on the phone and you don't have the necessary stuff. Let's say, let's make the assumption you really are you. (laughs) You really are the customer. You're not a fraudster. You don't have the stuff I'm asking for because you just legitimately don't know the answers to these questions. I have this difficulty now because I can't put the bank at risk and say, well, you seem like a nice person. I'm just going to let you in anyway. But I also can't say, I'm sorry, we can't help you. You're going to have to go to a banking center and present your ID there because all the banking centers are are closed. So it really created this really challenging environment. But what it also did was it, it made everyone realize how critical it is that we have innovative solutions in the digital security space so that you can solve for those sorts of things. And I'm not saying that we always, you know, every bank gets it right, but at least uh, everyone was trying to solve for those scenarios. Whereas before there was a tendency to just sort of say, well, we can't solve for that. So just send them into the banking center. Now it was, we can't send them into the banking center. We have to solve for this, you know, invent what is it necessity is the mother of invention so you have to that's exactly it you have to figure out some kind of a solution so there was a lot of pressure over the last two years to really upgrade the ability for customers to to bank remotely and still be secure so absolutely and and everything happened uh, so quickly i don't think anybody expected yeah to not be able to go anywhere, you know, in a period of, you know, within two weeks. And one would argue as well that um, authentication is a matter of national security. I mean, yes. all all major breach, you know, breaches happen uh, because of escalation of privileges, uh, identity theft, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, stolen credentials. Mm-hmm. That's how everything starts. I, I think yep. people don't realize that when they hear um, company X, uh, you know, got breached on the news, it's typically from from authentication that gone wrong. Uh-huh. Um, 
And so we are on a way to solve it. But do you feel that, you know, maybe, I don't know, we've been talking about this for 20 years. Do you feel that eventually we'll get into some nirvana where we're going to say, okay, we can, we can lean back and say, okay, we're now, you know, secure and we have, we have the right authentication in place, or is it always going to be a, a, a kind of a journey or kind of a little bit of a struggle? Well, I think there's always going to be a journey because even if we solve today's problems, then there'll be new ones. So it's a trade-off, right? So um, the bad guys, unfortunately, are trying to, are, are trying to get ahead of every solution that it, you know, that we come up with. So any, I think the, the most important takeaway is that any cybersecurity strategy has to be fluid. It has to constantly be changing. You can't, you can't survive in this security environment if you don't have the ability to change, um, whatever it is you invested in two years ago isn't going to cut it two years later because it's the bad guys are changing their tune all the time. I mean, I can remember when one-time passcodes were the silver bullet when we didn't have them. We just had passwords. We had passwords and physical tokens or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden they come up with one-time passcodes and it's like, oh my God, this is awesome. We're fixed. We, we, we've got it. It's one time. How bad can it be? And then all of a sudden, you know, they figure out, well, sim swap and phishing and all the rest, and you have to be able to shift. So I would say that we're always going to be having to battle the bad guys. They're always going to be out there because it's lucrative unless we can truly make it where they can't make any money off of us, which is pretty hard to do. But I think the other thing that has to happen in order for us to make big strides and get ahead, in particular in the U.S., um, is we have got to move away from the password, period. And sure, secrets. It is time. <laughs> um, I won't mention a name, but there's a company that just had a breach this past week who focuses on authentication, and they got breached through a password. That was password, which is insane. Um, I understand why it's so hard to move away from password. And I know we think we've already done it with all this work on biometrics. But as long as everything goes back to a password to recover, you're still on passwords. And it's just as, as weak as it's ever been. So, the only, you know, there are companies like I'll, I'll like... Um, Yahoo uh, Japan, I think it is that, and and also, um, oh my gosh, what is the name of that company? Oh, I can't think of it. Jumped out of my head. Um, another uh, Korean company or Japanese company where they put FIDO in place. They gave people a secure mechanism for a convenient sign-in, but they didn't take away the password. They just said, here, here's another alternative, just like everyone else. And then they gave people an option. And they said, would you like to turn off your password? You've been using biometrics now for two years. 98% of the time you use your fingerprint. Are you ready? Can you just turn off that password? We'll give you a way to recover if you can't get in with your fingerprint. We'll give you three other ways you can get in or something like that. But one, it will not be a password. Until we can do that, until we can really 
take the password out of the equation, we're just digging at that sand hole at the beach that just keeps filling back in. <laughs> you know, Liz, they, they, I'm, I'm assuming that some people were so emotionally attached to the password that they had the same password for 20 years. That too. So they had a they had a personal relationship with that password. Oh yes, right? yes. And and so oh, and, getting and, rid of it. Yeah, it's hard. It's I mean, it's not easy. And there are there are legitimate reasons why it hasn't moved. <laughs> um, I mean, I can remember. I won't go into any of the details, but we were trying at one of the banks I worked at, we were trying to, to make the password safer by putting more criteria onto it. And that meant that people had to reset their password and we don't have a, you know, you have to reset your password all the time kind of criteria. So some people hadn't reset their passwords in years and years and years. And they started to contact us and say, I have short-term memory problems. If you make me reset, and it's a legitimate problem. If you make me reset my password, I'll never be able to get back into my bank account. These are, these are real problems. These are not, you know, anything trivial for that person. But somehow we have to look at what's, you know, best for the greater good. And for the greater good, it's get rid of passwords and get rid of them now. Yeah, it's uh, truly remarkable that there's just so many yeah. in favor reasons why we should get rid of shared secrets and get rid of passwords. Exactly. But we're still like 2022. Yeah. And uh, we're still, as you, you know, you're trying to. For one sugar. second, I have. And I feel like there's, uh, there's some other areas that I wanted to get into and we didn't have the time to do that today. Um, you know, like, for example, working specifically with the banks, you know, how to how do technologies get implemented in large scale organizations mm. under uh, scrutiny? Um, so I'd love to get into that. Uh, but maybe, again, we can do a part B session sure. for this. But until then, Liz, what's the easiest way for people to get a hold of you to uh, for consulting opportunities, uh, yeah. uh, mentorship, uh, whatever else. I mean, you, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to implement, you know, uh, this type of technology, I don't think there's any better person than, than yourself to, to, to assist. Oh, so what's the easiest way you. for people to get rid of um, So I'm on LinkedIn, um, Liz Vota. Um, I, I, I will say um, I'm being totally transparent and totally honest here. I, I'm I'm doing this because I love talking about this, not because I'm trying to generate uh, a groundswell of of clients. Because technically, I'm retired <laughs> and like to spend. Not so fast, Liz. I don't think you. Uh, not so fast, Liz. I, and I think you listen. You, we need more people like yourself who are proponents of of. And again, I I wasn't joking about it. Yeah. I think it's it's a you know it's a national security issue it we is, need to absolutely. solve. Um, so and it's in everyone's best interest to to get you know yes. get more and more of this technology implemented. Absolutely, uh, best interest. And then I think it's it's if you ask me for the collective mindset, being I think we're all going to be a little more calm. And collected if we didn't have to reset passwords, like uh, yes. reset, you know, a few times a week. Yes. Um, so even yeah. for the collective minds, you know, mindset, I think that would also be yeah. very, very helpful. Well, and I, you well. know, I would just, if anyone's listening to this, who isn't in the authentication space, but works in a different part of their company or is just a consumer in general, you know, put the pressure on your companies that you interact with or the one that you work for 
and tell them you don't want to rely on one-time passcodes and passwords. You want the technology that's out there that, you know, that has been built and is available. Um, you want FIDO, you want the usability, and you want the security. So a lot of it is, you know, the chicken or the egg kind of thing where it's, you know, some of the companies say, well, you know, there aren't that many companies that are offering FIDO right now. And then those companies say, well, we're not offering it yet because our customers haven't asked for it. Well, how do the customers know to ask for it? If they don't know it even exists, you have to be a leader and get out there and say, hey, we take security seriously. I need FIDO in my organization. Um, you know, so that's just my uh, my two cents on my soapbox. Yeah, no, absolutely, Liz. And, and I've heard that that's how sometimes, uh, you know, FIDO get um, into other companies. As employees move to another company and then we, you know, after not having to log in with the traditional two-factor authentication, yep. um, they have to do it again. And they were like, what? Because I think it's super hard to get back into, into entering your oh, yeah. after use to uh, the ease of use. Oh, yeah. Of, Once you do uh, it, super it's hard to go back to the... So I think they raise their hands and then ask, you know, typically ask mm -hmm. to to get that implemented. Uh, but, we, you know, we'll definitely. Um, so, first of all, thank you very much for, for joining uh, me pleasure. today. And and we'll do this again sometime soon. I'll, I'll work around your schedule and to uncover uh, some additional topics. You have mm -hmm. such a you know vast experience. We covered quite a bit in the short time. We did. We did. Um, and uh, I love your explanation about FIDO. Much, much appreciated. Hopefully people who are not familiar with, this, with the standard are now a little bit more familiar and, and I'll uh, encourage to, to take a look at it um, as yeah, well. Take a look at some of the vendors associated with them as well. At FIDOalliance.org, there's a great uh, link to what's called the FIDO Showcase. And you can see all the companies that have implemented FIDO, how they're using it, et cetera. So it's, um, it's a it's an excellent website, so I highly recommend it. Perfect. Thank you very much. Sure. And uh, for all those who uh, joined, thank you for joining the podcast today. Much, much appreciated. And until then, uh, we'll see you the next time. Until then, stay safe offline as well as online. Talk Thanks. to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, sure. Liz.